I'm Audrey, and you are listening to Seattle Growth Podcast, available free on iTunes. Welcome back to another episode of Seattle Growth Podcast, Season 6, which is focused on finding community in a dynamic city. I'm Jeff Schulman, a professor at the University of Washington's Foster School of Business, and in today's episode, you'll hear from State Representative Eric Pettigrew from the 37th District and from Orlando Morales of Fifth Avenue Theater. The interviews give insight that businesses and nonprofits can utilize as they seek to give back and to cultivate relationships with previously underserved communities. Both guests talk about the work they are doing to empower youth and to empower a broader set of communities to take a role in shaping a shared future. This episode gives you a chance to get to know one of our government leaders and also hear about a free program from Fifth Avenue Theater that is open to local high school students seeking an opportunity for personal growth and collaboration. Before we get to the first interview, I want to remind you of your next chance to see what Crosscut hailed as a compelling new documentary, a documentary that I produced and co-directed with talented filmmaker Stephen Fong. Seattle Theater Group is hosting a showing of On the Brink, at the Neptune Theater on Thursday, August 15th at 8 p.m. The Seattle Times praised the film as a cautionary tale and a call to action in the face of Seattle's rapid growth. Visit onthebrinkmovie.com screenings to register for tickets. Stick around after the movie to see several people who appeared in the film engage the audience in a discussion about carrying forward the legacy of the Central District. Get your tickets at onthebrinkmovie.com slash screenings to join me at the Neptune Theater on August 15th. Now, to learn more about community engagement efforts at one of the premier organizations for musical theater in the country, join me as I sit down with Orlando Morales. I am here with Orlando Morales. He's the Director of Education and Engagement at the prestigious Fifth Avenue Theater here in Seattle. Orlando, thank you very much for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. We're here to talk about people building community here in a dynamic city, and we're going to get into your Rising Star Project and some of the cool things you're doing as Director of Education and Engagement at the Fifth Avenue Theater. But before that, what brought you to Seattle? Well, I was, uh, I guess my parents, I was born here. So I, I was, I'm from Seattle, uh, grew up in South Seattle and in the south suburbs like Renton um, and in the Skyway area, uh, so right on the edge there. And uh, yeah, I, I guess it's my, my dad, I could have very easily been born in the Bay Area, but my dad uh, landed a job at Boeing in the 80s, and so we uh, became a Boeing family, and uh, that's just kind of been a defining Part of, I guess, who I am is uh, knowing that I'm a, a, a Seattle kid growing up in South Seattle, which is a kind of a different experience than I think I saw in, like, in the media of Seattle, uh, but also something I took a lot of pride in. So I guess that answers your question. I didn't really have a choice, but I chose to stay. Yeah, uh, you did I love choose it to here. stay. Yeah. So why did yeah. you choose to stay? Beyond my parents, uh, my great-grandfather came here from the Philippines, um, and was one of the, the cannery migrant workers, like up and down the, the West Coast, settled in Seattle. Then my grandparents also immigrated to Seattle. They settled here. Um, and so I guess there's just a lot of uh, have family roots. We have family history here. Uh, and I think the very unique ethnic enclaves that I grew up in uh, as a kid, I, I just... Um, 
take a lot of pride in in those neighborhoods and, and the way that we were raised. And I think Seattle had a lot to do with that. And so when I think about, you know, moving somewhere else, setting down roots in another city, it's just something that's not, I, I don't have it in my imagination because this, this already feels like home. One more question about Seattle itself. So these last, I think it's about seven years now, Seattle's experienced a very rapid transformation, this big boom. What change have you found most striking? I could talk about the South Seattle neighborhoods where watching things develop. Um, I think uh, just uh, as an example, there's there's some new buildings going up in, and I don't have anything against like like new buildings. Like that's, it's it's great to, to maybe develop an area, but I think when it happens so rapidly, you get used to some of the businesses and some of the, the old houses that, that used to be around. And, and knowing also that, that that new development is trumpeting the change of, of the people who make up that neighborhood. I think that that's been the most striking is just realizing, I think for a while, um, a few years ago, I was living in South Lake Union and you see all that rapid development around there. And I'm like, okay, I get this. This is, this is Amazon land. Got to have all these apartments. Sure. And, uh, and my mom used to work at the Seattle Times, so I kind of knew that that neighborhood as it used to be. But still, that development didn't uh, really strike me as anything unusual, given you know where we are economically. But when I started to see things happening down in South Seattle, like uh, on ML King, like in Beacon Hill, South Beacon, like right on Beacon and, and Othello, there's some new buildings coming up that used to be an Asian grocery store and an African market and like a and like a, a black church and. And kind of seeing those things go away for for apartments like the ones I saw in South Lake Union, that's that's very anxiety producing. And I know that a lot of that has changed. Some of it might be unreasonable, but it's also like the end of a way of life, I think, in some ways. And with uh, these feelings of anxiety and all the changes that you're experiencing, seeing and other people in this city are experiencing, um, you know, a lot of people are feeling kind of lost and alone. I don't want to speak for everybody, but there are individuals who feel like oh, yeah. uh, a little bit lost as they see people move away and, and the community gathering spaces they knew uh, disappear. Um, talk about what you're doing with the Fifth Avenue Theater to help build community among some of the people that are being affected by these changes you've seen. Sure. Well, uh, we try to take the shows that we put up, the stories that we're telling on stage, and as much as possible, extend them into conversations that are being had or relevant to the community. So, for example, uh, when we were uh, doing a production of Ragtime, uh, I believe last season, we took that as an opportunity to talk about, um, and Ragtime is, is very famously about the different ethnic groups in, in um, New York, uh, kind of at the early part of this century, the 19th century, uh, sorry, 20th century. And uh take that opportunity to kind of look at our own multi-ethnic neighborhood here, the Central District, which is kind of famously known for, for being a, a, an intersection of, of Jewish, Black, Asian immigrants, and uh, holding panel discussion uh, and community events around that. And so I think it's just that uh, whenever we can look to theater's heritage as a storytelling uh vehicle but storytelling to kind of reflect what's happening what the human condition is and for us in Seattle that's what's happening here uh, amongst us in the change and giving people 
an outlet not only to discuss, but also to remember and imagine ways that we can move forward uh, before it's too late in a way that's more equitable and more just. So we spoke to David Armstrong in season four, uh, and he was the artistic director of Fifth Avenue Theater. But can you just tell a little bit about Fifth Avenue Theater? So the Fifth Avenue Theater is right in downtown Seattle, right on Fifth Ave, uh, in between University and Union. And it, I think most people in Seattle know it as kind of the big theater where you go watch musicals. We do musical theaters uh, almost it, like exclusively. And uh, we have a 2,000-seat house. Uh, we do produce most of the season ourselves, but we do have a few tours coming through. And uh, I think for me growing up, it wasn't necessarily a place that I came to a lot. It was like that once a year uh, big treat cultural outing for my family. But I know that's really valuable to a lot of Seattle families is to have that place where they know they can go watch something that's quality, that's as good as they would see up in New York. And uh, I think now working there, I take a lot of pride in that responsibility and also the fact that we we nurture young musicals, things that are headed to Broadway uh, or things that are headed to regional theaters, too, uh, that, that have a unique voice. So, yeah, I think uh, for me, the Fifth Avenue Theater is a, a cornerstone of the arts uh, and theater community in Seattle, but that's not without its own kind of set of baggage. Um, and I think a lot of the work that I do is starting to address the way that regional theaters had come to root in I don't know, throughout the nation uh, in ways that were favoring, you know, suburban, upper class, white families. And so I think uh, I take pride in what the fifth is, uh, you know, starting to, ha you know, in the past few years, in the past decade, starting to rewrite that and reimagine its place in, in, in our community. Yeah, one of the things I found fascinating from my interview with David Armstrong, who was the artistic director at the time, of just how Seattle is such a big place for musical theater. I find that fascinating as well. I, and growing up, I really didn't get involved in musical theater until I was in high school and college. And I didn't really understand how, how influential Seattle was uh, in that. It just kind of felt like something that we just had access to. Uh, it was part of the, the ecosystem here. But uh, something I definitely don't take for granted now is that uh, there's a, a love of musical theater, not only uh, amongst organizations that, that produce it, but amongst the, the public as well. And I think that that makes musical theater um, a, a great vehicle for connecting people and for, for um, going out into the community and engaging the community because it is something that already um, has uh, some, some connection amongst people. And so Seattle is one of the leading musical theater communities in the country. Yes. Sending lots of uh, several plays to Broadway from the Fifth Avenue Theater. Fifth Avenue Theater is a big part of this, uh, putting Seattle on that map. And now you're working on something to trying to find or trying to nurture the talent locally uh, with the Rising Star Project. Tell me a little bit about what you're doing, how that got started and, and 
and more about it. Sure. So the Rising Star Project is, well, the mission of the Rising Star Project is an educational program for teenagers 14 and 19. Uh, any Washington State student is eligible. And our primary mission is to use the resources and the expertise that we have at the Fifth Avenue Theater to help uh, every young person achieve a fulfilling career, a stronger sense of self, and uh, have more confidence in their ability to affect positive change in the world. And so you notice in there that the, the only time we really mention theater is resources at the Fifth Avenue Theater. So this really primarily for us is a way to connect with young people to nurture them along their career path, whatever that may be, but to do so using the medium that we know and that we know we have expertise in, which is musical theater. So the students come in and they take on all the roles that are necessary to mount a professional show on our theater. And we definitely mentor them. We uh, coach them and provide scaffolding for them to be successful. But at some point, our uh, mentors and the professionals that are working with the kids really st take a step back and say, okay, it's your show. Let's do this. And uh, we find that raises the bar. Uh, it sets expectations. And students really rise to the occasion, not unlike stars. Um, and so that's that's. The program in a nutshell and how it has come to be or what it is now. And but when did it get started? started in 2011 and it was kind of a very different undertaking at the time. So in 2011, uh, Bill Barry uh, and the other uh, leadership had this idea to uh, have a musical that was performed by teens because we had at that time a, a rare uh, dark time in the calendar. Usually they try to book out the theater so that there's no empty space in, in, in the calendar. But this year, after a production of Oklahoma, they saw this space and uh, started spitballing some ideas, landed on a, well, what if we brought in some students to perform parts of Oklahoma? That snowballed into, well, why don't the students put up a production of Oklahoma? It could be like all state, Broadway bound performers, like the, the best of the best in Washington state come in and per perform on the Fifth Avenue stage. And that's how it started, the general idea. Then that kind of started to balloon into, well, why are they? Why are we just favoring the students who are performers? Why not students who are interested in the tech aspects, the theater technology, uh, hair and makeup, costume wardrobe, uh, arts administration, marketing? And you can see how it just kind of grew into this whole thing. Let's get the entire organization involved. Let's get an orchestra down there. And uh, then it really started to pick up steam, became something that, everybody uh, got really excited about and started to become more of what we see the Rising Star Project as today. Not as something where we bring in, again, students who are already you know, on the path to being Broadway stars, but any student who has a passion for storytelling or who has an interest in musical theater, uh, regardless of where they are, are headed, can come in and... Uh, be exposed to a professional practice, be exposed to professional mentorship, and I think more importantly, and I think along the things things that you're looking at are have a chance to meet students from other parts of the community who have a similar passion. And uh, we right now this year we had students from over 50, I think we almost hit 60 high schools. So out of a cohort of about 100 and two or three, 103 students, 
they they represented over 60 high schools and so that that in itself is is really unique to this program and um or is unique to this program and so i think that's that's something that we we think of the rising star project as a first teaching collaboration that's they come in here and yes they're putting on a show but we aren't necessarily teaching theater skills first. They have to learn theater skills in order to do the thing. But the primary learning is collaboration. How long have you been in charge of the Rising Star Project? I've been in charge since 2014, uh, but I was blessed to be involved, uh, at least peripherally or as, a, as an associate um, uh education staff person from the beginning from 2011 so I got to see how it started um and then in 2014 they they entrusted me with the <laughs> with the reins and, and what accomplishment in your uh, roughly five years of uh, being in charge uh, of the rising star project at fifth avenue theater are you most proud of what accomplishment are you most proud of oh okay well I'm really it's hard to ask that now because we just got done with west side story and technically probably one of the most difficult musicals we could have asked the students to do both on the performance side and on the theater technology side and on the marketing side to the arts administration sides. So I'm really proud of the work that they just accomplished. And they just, we did this a, a couple weeks ago is when it went up and, and came down. So I think I'm very proud of, of that accomplishment for those students. Uh, and, but if we're kind of looking at, all of the years, I would say that at the moment where we decided that Rising Star Project could be how we engage with social justice efforts in our area, uh, that Rising Star Project could be a way for us to be involved in the effort to provide equal access to arts for all students and that being embraced by our theater and our leadership, I'm very proud of that moment, I think, very specifically, because it, it totally changed. It didn't necessarily change the mechanism of what we were doing, but it changed the philosophy and it changed the, the ultimate goal. And I think that was really important for, for the program to, to find some, some moral uh, foundations to stand on and, and have that reason for existing other than to put kids up on the stage and, and to applaud them, but to also say that this is a way that we want to uh, make sure that the next generation has the tools that we can provide to, to make a positive impact in the world. And so you've, you bring 100 students together uh, with a common interest in theater, uh, whether that's technical or the artistic part or the performing part, um, teach them collaboration, inspire them, as you said, to make positive change in the world. What feelings have you had as you're seeing the fruits of your labor, as you're seeing these students come together and grow year after year? Oh, definitely just deep pride in, in students in the way that, that I think a lot of teachers can, can relate to is that you see students come in a lot of times we require no experience for a Rising Star Project student. They have to apply, and there's an interview or an audition, but oftentimes we're just looking for growth potential or, or uh, some resilience in that student. 
So seeing them go from very possibly not knowing anything about the industry or what we do, and then we've had some students tell us that, hey, you know, arts development is is the career that I ended up pursuing in college because we're starting to have college graduates now uh, in our past cohorts. I think that just fills me with a sense of pride that that's really hard to to capture in words. And it also gives me hope for the future. I think there's there's a lot of you know messed up stuff that we're seeing in the news and and um, and just the state of the world around us. And like we were talking about earlier, that just the what feels like exponential change is happening in in my hometown and being able to also in my life see students who are moving forward and growing it definitely gives me hope for the future and so that's something that that uh i it, it's good for me <laughs> I think to to be able to deal and, and cope with with so much change and, and bleakness in in the news and, and in the world. So it, yeah, the the kids definitely give me a lot of um, joy and hope for the future. And so you are a part of um, building this rising star project at the Fifth Avenue Theater, and then you've now led it as it's kind of transformed and, and morphed into to something. Uh, bigger than just teaching theater, but building, bringing people together and, and helping develop them along a common purpose. Do you have any lessons for somebody at another organization um, from your experience in building this community and kind of launching this project that, that somebody else could take away? So somebody outside of musical theater? I think it's easy for arts organizations and and arts educators to kind of go in with this mentality of like, I'm going to give you art. I'm like, I'm here to bring you this amazing thing called theater or musical theater, and it's going to change your life. And speaking as a, as a person who grew up in the South End, a person of color who grew up in the South End, which is an area that is in historically and institutionally been ignored by arts organizations in that the past decades. Uh, it's easy to kind of roll your eyes at that because it's like, it's not like we didn't have art while y'all were gone. We did our own things. We created dance teams. We had choirs at church. We, we have a very vibrant and dynamic arts ecosystem. It just might not look as um, formalized as, as a regional arts organization uh, would expect to see but that doesn't mean that it's any less meaningful to us or that we take any less pride in that and so when I think arts organizations are thinking about creating programming that's going to help quote-unquote or going to enrich the lives quote-unquote of people in quote-unquote underserved communities it starts to feel a little bit um, not disingenuous like I know that, that that their hearts are in the right place but it also feels like it's missing a big part of of what's what's there, and I think that's there's this whole movement, the community engagement and movement is is starting to address this. But I think that would be my advice: is just to really know who who you're trying to get involved and to to 
figure out how you can proceed forward in the spirit of partnership and not in the spirit of, you know, I, it's almost colonial, you know, like we're going to bring this amazing thing to you who doesn't have anything, but not considering that there might be something there already that you should be building on or respecting first. Um, the Rising Star Project now has the component that most people see that's up on the stage that th they can buy a ticket to come and check out. But there's also a whole ecosystem of smaller programming and initiatives that uh, balance out this big thing that we do on our stage. We have residencies and workshops that are out in South Seattle and the community and, and in Kent. We have a huge residency that is in all four of its high schools that really was created in a way that we could come to a school and say, what do you need? As opposed to us saying, we have this thing that you need and, and we want to give it to you. So for instance, in, in the Kent School District, they asked us to help with their, uh, like their school assemblies, like their Martin Luther King Annual Assembly, which isn't really a theatrical thing. Uh, from a cursory look, when you think of, you know, when I started to think about it more, I was like, oh, this is totally theater. Like it's, it's, um, like Boal, there's a, um, like theater of the oppressed talks about like invisible theater. I was like, what if this is like invisible musical theater? You know, we could find ways for these students to, to say the thing that they want to the, um, they approach us because they wanted their assemblies to start having impact, like emotional impact. And, um, if there's one thing that a musical theater house knows how to do, it's how to you know manipulate the emotions of our audiences. And what I like about the word manipulate is that it's it's strategic. It's like there's craft to it. Okay. It's like we want people to cry here. And so we're going to point the lights this way. We're going to swell the music here. We're going to write this melody. And that's very like, it doesn't just, there's magic to it, but I think the magic is in how carefully crafted it is and that's another thing that we try to teach in rising star projects is everything needs to be intentional as much as possible even if it's a, a moment that that is improvised you still have to like set things up in a way that it's going to have um as much impact as possible and and so i kind of am off on a tangent but <laughs> that's uh that's kind of where uh, we see ourselves now is that there's this balance between what we're doing out in the community, um, hopefully. And it's, it's definitely tips one way and the other, and we're constantly trying to, to find ways to make sure that, that things stay in balance. I think it's an ongoing effort and it's ongoing uh, conversation. That, that seems like a lot more work. Instead of just taking what you have and finding ways to get that to more people, you have to both listen and adjust a little bit of what you do to adapt to the community you're trying to help. Can you talk about the kind of work and where the payoff is in that? It's it's very simple when you just kind of like talk about it in theory. The work is building relationships, right? It's meeting the teachers in the schools that you're going to, talking to them about their students, talking to them about the obstacles and what's going on in you know what budget cuts are happening um 
again in that in the Kent School District, which I know is outside of Seattle, but um, just an as an example, them talking to us about how they'd seen an uptick in racialized bullying, you know, uh, over the, the past, you know, couple years and, uh, and us kind of going, okay, well, let's, let's do something around that. So it's as simple as relationship building, but the thing that builds relationships is time. And, you know, from a business standpoint, they're always saying, no, oh, time is money. So that's what makes it hard is that you, you, one, you have to figure out how to have the people power and the bandwidth to to go out and meet those people and to build those relationships and to be a presence in the hallways and in the students' lives without pushing anything, uh, an agenda on them other than we want to be here as a resource for you. Um, I shouldn't say that we don't have anything as large organizations going into a community, it's not like we don't have anything to, to provide. I think access to career paths is the most, um, uh, I think access to career paths is a thing that we shouldn't underplay, that there are arts adjacent and arts uh, careers that students don't have access to because of the neighborhoods they come come from. Uh, and so that's I'll I'll draw a line a distinction between us saying that we're going to give you art, and us saying hey you know y- there's so much potential here for you to be involved in arts or arts adjacent fields and and we can connect you to that. Um, but again, addressing that w- how do we how do we do the work? It's figuring out you know do we need to bring in more staff? Do we need to rethink the job description a little bit? to make sure that people have boots on the ground out there and and making time not just to make the art, but to meet the people who could be partners in making that art. And I think the other thing too is to talk to the other organizations who are doing this, because I think that was really valuable for me, is uh, over at the Seattle Rep, they have an amazing program called the Public Works Program that uh, I, I've been able to learn more about and talk to them about and um, just different organizations who are starting to revamp the way that they do things in the spirit of community engagement, which is turning into such a you know buzzword and cliche. But it's interesting how everybody says it, or that, that many people say it, but don't quite understand, like you say, how much work it is and how much of a remix or a re- uh, envisioning of what their organization does but it's crucial i think a lot of organizations if they don't understand community engagement theater organizations do understand diminishing returns that there you know are a lot of fifth avenue theater isn't one but i know so many theaters whose subscriber bases is shrinking a lot of theaters who are like why do we still only have primarily white audiences why aren't people of color or other minoritized people engaging with our theater? And it's, you can't just keep doing things the same way and expect for, for change. If we're looking to have a more sustainable theater community, we need to somehow remind the people around us and our community how vital theater is to our heritage not only as Western people, but just as human humans, is that our primary w- way of telling stories throughout history was theater. Um, and so that's something that I think is is a responsibility of 
our regional organizations that we have those resources to do that. Um, and that's what we can bring to the table and to the conversation, but it has to be done in the spirit of partnership. So I want to give you a chance to, to give a plug. If somebody's out there looking for community, why, when, and how can they come across Fifth Avenue Theater? Risingstarproject.org is a way that you can just access information and applications when they come up. We're about to put an application out for the upcoming school year. And this is something that we do every year. And again, every student in Washington between the ages of 14 and 19 is eligible for this program. And it's tuition free, something that I didn't bring up. Uh, but that's uh, hopefully takes down a lot of uh, barriers for students. Do you need to come from a low income family then to be able to apply if it's tuition free? Uh, you do not. Uh, but there is a, an application process that we go through uh, to see if uh, kind of if this is something that, that we feel you'll be successful in. Any concluding thoughts? I would just leave with this idea that uh, theater is a way for our students to practice being humans in a way. And so with Rising Star Project, we found a way not only to bring them in to practice professionalism and, and things that are going to get them ready for their academic and professional careers, but by also doing theater, they're reconnecting with this um, way of practicing humanity that I think is unique. And I, if there are other organizations and there are other theaters anywhere that are also interested in doing this, I hope that they do reach out to us because this isn't something that we want to necessarily stay unique to the Fifth Avenue Theater. I personally feel like every theater should have this type of uh, this type of work going on, uh, not only for their sakes, but also for the, the sakes of our, our future as a, as a theater community. Orlando, thank you very much for joining me today. I appreciate thank your time you. and perspective. No, this is great. My next interview shares a few state initiatives coming out of Olympia and gives a chance to get to know one of our state legislators. But before we get to that interview, if you have not seen my new documentary, On the Brink, please pause this podcast and head to www.onthebrinkmovie.com screenings to register to see the film on August 15th at the Neptune Theater. This is a rare chance to see the film for free, courtesy of Seattle Theater Group's Nights at the Neptune, a people's theater joint. Even though you have a chance to see it free, thanks to Seattle Theater Group, You'll need to register for your ticket in advance at www.onthebrinkmovie.com screenings. As written in Crosscut, the history lesson here is one all Seattleites would benefit from learning. I want to see you there. Now, join me as I sit down with State Representative Eric Pettigrew. I'm here with Eric Pettigrew, who represents the 37th District in the Washington State House of Representatives. Representative Pettigrew, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. So we're here to talk about finding community in a dynamic city. And I thought we would take this interview to talk a little bit about uh, some of the work you're doing to kind of tease out the benefits of building community, of connecting with one another. Uh, before that, I've asked all my guests, what brought you to Seattle? Good question. So just give you a little bit of uh, my personal background. I grew up uh, in South Central Los Angeles back in the 1960s and 70s. And, and um, uh, after the Watts riots, I uh, had a chance after a few years to move out to La Puente, California, which is about 30 miles east of L.A. 
and got a football scholarship to Oregon State University. Although I'm on the campus of UW, I still think it's the finest university in the world. Uh-uh. Uh, <laughs> although I did get my master's here as well. Um, but I uh, got a scholarship there and uh, came up here to get my master's. I got recruited by one of the professors here to come up and, and uh, be a research assistant. And and uh, and then I stayed. And it's just a beautiful place. And talk about community. I mean, I really tapped into community to, to start my career. And uh, it's been a part of me ever since and a part of kind of how I work and how I live. And so you've been here for many years. Uh, the last seven, Seattle and the region has experienced a dramatic transformation. What changes in this latest boom have you found most striking? You know, probably the lack of understanding of history and uh, kind of how all these communities have uh, operated either apart or together. And, uh, and really the thread that uh, we've maintained in Seattle, you know, from the time I've been here, which is we love being considered the, the big little town. Uh, but at the same time, um, we're not Hicks, <laughs> you know. We're uh, and so it's 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 been interesting to see the d- diversity of folks come in, not only in uh, ethnicity, but also in just geographically, kind of how they've come in and, and how they've started to create their own own history. So being one of the, I wouldn't call myself an old timer, but somebody who's been here for at least forty years or so, it's just been really striking to to see that part of it kind of get pushed to the wayside a little bit. Typically, I, in this season, I've been talking with people who have built a community. This interview is going to be a little bit different, where I want to talk about kind of the benefits of building community, mm-hmm. and then the role that, that you hope government will take in kind of enhancing those benefits or realizing those benefits. So let, let's talk a little bit about mentorship. So mm-hmm. as you know, you form a community and, and social connections uh, mentorship is one potential output of that. Yeah, uh, yeah. Talk about the importance of mentorship as you see it, and then we'll get to kind of how you're writing right. legislation about it. Right, right. It, I mean, it's absolutely huge. I mean, I, I, I really uh, relate or credit uh, the success of, of anybody with the relationships they have and they're able to make and connections they're, they're able to make. I truly believe that uh, everybody wants to be successful and they're just trying to figure out the right avenues to do that. And one of the ways they learn that is through the mentorships, people they connect with. And it's I mean, we call it mentorship, we call it role modeling, we call it a whole bunch of things, but it's really a basic thing. It's just connecting with people and be, uh, giving people an opportunity to, to connect and uh, find their own pathway. Do you have any mentors that have meant something to you that you want to give a shout out Man, to? I mean, how much time do we have? I mean, I could go from day one. Uh, well, I can start from where I was a kid, Mrs. Bradford. I, I just I had a huge crush on her in second grade. and But she's always in my head along with Miss Allen. But uh, up here in Seattle, I mean, people like that took me under the wings like Sam Smith and uh, Norm Rice and James Kelly and Kip Takuda and, you know, Teresa Fujiwara. I mean, I could go on and Joanna Saba. I mean, there's so many uh, folks that um, are, the res- uh, you know, you look at me and whatever successes I've had that are really, I'm just a part of who they are and what they gave me uh, as far as their uh, role modeling and their support over the years. So it's absolutely, I mean, I could go on and on and on. And I'm, still, I'm still getting role models and, and folks uh, whether they are older or younger than I am, folks that uh, are uh, taking adventures and taking on new uh, areas, whether there are 
uh, community driven or emotionally driven or whatever it is that uh, continue to inspire me. And so you've mentioned a long list of mentors and you're just scratching the surface, as you said. What aspect of your life do you most credit to a mentor or maybe share just a little bit of an emotional story of you know, what that mentorship has meant to you or done oh, wow. for you? Probably the, uh, the greatest mentor I've ever, that, I mean, my number one mentor is probably my mom, you know, honestly. Uh, she was uh, born and raised in uh, rural Arkansas. And, uh, and she came from a long line of sharecroppers who were also slash Met, uh, Methodist ministers and Baptist ministers. And uh, one day at age 28, she said, I'm, I'm done with this. I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm not going to be working out in the fields. And she hopped on a bus, uh, moved to Bakersfield with some other relatives that were there and uh, started her life from there. And uh, that's always been a message to me, either directly or indirectly, that uh, if your environment is not what you want it to be, you have the power to actually change it. And if your life is not what you want it to be, you have the power to change it. And I've always carried that. And I've always made it a part of uh, who I am and a part of what I try to hand over and leave behind, whether it's my kids or or people I work with or people I uh, get an opportunity to mentor. Now, you yourself are getting an opportunity to, to mentor others. What do you get out of sharing oh, to somebody else? Well, I, I, I have more of a sense of payback that I am paying back uh, what has been given to me. Because I look at my life and I, I honestly have to say, I'm, I, you know, it's been a successful, I've had a successful life so far, you know, as far as, and I don't mean uh, that necessarily financially, but being in a position to actually uh, do some things in the world, make the world a little better place than I found it, uh, to have impact on uh, folks and and help them uh, understand and see a direction that's positive to helping other folks. And so really I get a sense of like, whew, I'm paying this back, which is great. And and, and all the people I work with, uh, I have a chance to mentor, I always tell them, or even if I get a chance to actually like give them something, I always tell them that your, your only payback to me is that when you get the opportunity that you do exactly the same thing that I've done. And that's the, uh, that's the only requirement I ask for anybody that, uh, that I get a chance to work with and, and give it for. Because without that, I mean... I just don't, I have no idea where uh, I would have ended up. I started out in a world that probably uh, meant that I was either going to be dead or in jail before a certain age and definitely uh, didn't have the uh, forethought or ability to dream about being in the position I'm in now, uh, and uh, which is why I am so passionate about mentorships and about giving young people and older people opportunities to kind of see their full potential because I look at myself and I say, man, I just, I'm, I'm not saying I'm the, I'm the smartest guy in the world at all. Just imagine if uh, we could inspire some uh, young people who are way smarter than I am. And I mean, they're, they're just going to have the opportunity to achieve so much, uh, so much more than I've been able to do. So as a Washington state legislator, you're, you're working on a bill related to mentorship. Before we get to that, why you're doing it and what you're hoping to accomplish with it, let's do a little civics lesson okay. uh, for the listener. 
recognizing people don't have a map in front of them, just broadly speaking, where does the 37th district encompass? So if you've ever been down to uh, T-Mobile Field and uh, uh, CenturyLink, if you would start at um, down there and you would take basically do almost like a shotgun blast uh, through Rainier Valley, uh, Madrona, Leshy, Seward Park, uh, Lake Ridge, Bryn Mawr, all the way to downtown Renton. That's the 37th legislative district, and it's uh, butted uh, against, uh, split at uh, Beacon Hill on the east. Uh, I'm sorry, on the west uh, border, and on the east border, uh, it is split uh, really around along Madison Avenue, all the way down through uh, Lake Washington and takes a turn to Renton. How often are you in Olympia and how often are you elsewhere and what are you doing when you're elsewhere? So uh, the Washington State Legislature is a, a, a part-time legislature. It's a citizen's le legislature, which means that uh, for uh, every other year, we're in Olympia 105 days, uh, and then the next year 60 days. So we just had a 105-day session. We'll go back uh, to Olympia in January for a 60-day se session. Um, and, uh, and it's meant to be, you go out, you do this legislation and then you come back uh, to your regular job. Uh, and my regular job is I work, I've been in insurance. I've trained as a social worker, but I've been in insurance longer than I've done social work. That's for dang sure. Um, but that's my other full-time job, but it's, it's, uh, it's not like we go to Olympia and then we just do legislation and we're done. We don't talk to anyone. I mean, you're a legislator 24-7. You know, I go to the grocery store, the gas station, wherever it is, and people are, are uh, approaching me with issues and questions that they have, which is great. Um, and then we're also involved in other uh, events and activities. And, and then eventually we have the campaign and all that stuff. So it's, it's also a full-time job. Yeah, so how do you manage having two jobs? Man, I have a, I have a very supportive family, a very supportive uh, um, company that I work for and uh, it's really and a, and a great staff of folks or a person, Erica who's my uh, legislative assistant who basically keeps me on track and I want to hear about mentorship and, and what you're trying to do at the state level uh, with that I truly believe that it's uh, the success of especially young people is who they connect with, you know, it's not that, oh, I don't want to I don't want to just get a bad grade is part of the, the message. But also sometimes it's like, I don't want to disappoint, you know, Mrs. Allen, you know. And so that's a connection that's made that this person um, uh, goes back and forth with. And I, I honestly believe that if more and more folks had that connection, because that's something that we all are seeking, that uh, there would be a lot more opportunities for success for folks. So this mentorship uh, bill that I created was really a matter of a number of organiz a number of great organizations coming to me and saying, you know, we have some needs. We'd like to be able to do this and expand it in different areas, whether it's in the public school system, or out in the community, or with business. And uh, when they came to me, knowing that I couldn't. Uh, get the money for each one of those organizations separately, I decided to create a granting program that would allow them to somewhat compete and uh, get some of those dollars to do the things they want to do. But um, it, it all feeds into the whether it's a traditional mentoring or the kind of informal mentoring that I get a chance to do. 
uh, it's all about uh, helping people connect. And that's what I, I've always tried to do in my, uh, in my roles, not only in the legislature, but also in the, the professional uh, life is uh, making sure that people are giving people an opportunity to connect. Why do you see the state as having a role in that instead of letting it happen naturally or just help letting, you know, private entities take it on? Because sometimes, uh, you know, there's there's a lot that needs to go around. You know, I mean, I don't know if there's a private entity that can take on all of that or even uh, it happening all naturally. Sometimes uh, in um, uh, sometimes things need a little boost. And if we have the resources to uh, to share uh, with organizations that we trust that are, are good at what they do, then uh, it's in the state's interest to, to do that. And what do you hope comes out of it? What are your measures of success? Well, I, the measure of success will be going back to those organizations and uh, really kind of seeing how they've uh, been able to continue to, to meet their mission and seeing some of the numbers that they, I mean, I say numbers, but you know, how many more young people were they able to connect with? And uh, hopefully out of that, you know, most of the stuff that we do at the, and most of the stuff I do, I probably will never really see the end result, you know, and uh, which is probably uh, makes me one of the probably not the best politicians in the world <laughs> because most people like to like, oh, I did this and I planted this flag and all this stuff. But I realize that really most of the significant work happens incrementally and it's a result of work that's come before me and it's uh, the success of it will likely be the result of when I'm done. And I have a responsibility to kind of keep the ball moving. And, uh, and mentorship programs aren't new in any way. And uh, uh, getting money from the state isn't necessarily uh, new. But uh, it's more importantly important that we continue to kind of keep that ball rolling so we can see the results. So I may never see, you know, someone coming to me and saying, oh, my God, you signed me up for this. You got this mentor money and I'll, I'll look at me and whatever. Uh, but that's okay because I know that uh, I'm a part of a chain uh, that hopefully will get uh, get some success for, for a lot of folks who didn't anticipate it. On this podcast, individuals have shared kind of a information sharing benefit of coming together in community. They've shared kind of the mission-driven benefits, so whether it's uh, sharing theater, sharing dance, sharing art, mm-hmm. sharing um, earthquake preparation, mm-hmm. getting people prepared. Another potential implication is that you have a voice at the table and that you can shape the future of Mm -hmm. uh, your neighborhood or your community uh, here in Seattle as we're undergoing this rapid transformation. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about your work that you're doing to try to help bring that along to help the the community, empower the community to shape their future? So, you know, I, uh, given my, I don't know how I'm wired or because of where I was born and raised and, or, uh, been my experience in the legislature the last 18 years is I, I'm I don't believe that change happens on consciousness changing alone that uh, it takes uh, some uh, awareness but also a lot of action and uh, what I am uh, hoping and what I continue to hope to do in the legislature is really kind of move folks away from just focusing on the conscious changing, which is like, you know, I got a dialogue, I'm saying something, I'm making a speech, I'm, I think I'm moving people, I 
gave a great speech and but if there's no action that actually follows behind it it's great for you and you walk away thinking like wow i'm awesome and people are telling you you're awesome because you said these things but in reality if you haven't actually housed someone fed someone changed someone's direction then you know really what have you done and so what i've what I'm hoping to do and what I've been trying to do is help people as I learn these different pathways of action, sharing that, giving it to them, giving them the tools, giving them the confidence that they uh, need to have to say, you know what, if you want to make a change, you just make the change and you bring people along with that. And then consciousness uh, will increase with that change once people see what it is that you're actually doing. But if you think that people are going to change and have your experience and you're going to be able to articulate here's my experience and they're going to feel the same thing and have the same like 24 7 commitment to it or understanding of it or historical in, in the case of some ethnic groups or not you know or you know all that all our ethnicities you know some understanding of kind of what that history means and how you carry it and work with it on a day-to-day basis uh i don't think that's really it's not a realistic thing but if you show the action and you show, you know, here we're moving forward, we're doing this, this is what we meant by, then I think that's where the change happens and the consciousness uh, changing happens. So you have a, a bill that you've introduced about uh, the Community Development Public Authority. Can you tell me uh, how that fits into what you just spoke about? In the state, there is money that is set aside for construction of buildings and re- rehabbing things, that process in, in itself alone, it creates its own economy. So you have to hire architect, you have to hire builders, you have to ha- purchase concrete, you got to purchase wood, all those things. Typically, the way it's worked, it's been just, you know, it's been a small group of folks who've been able to take advantage of that. And if you look at a dollar that's coming in from the state, you could probably equate one dollar to $7 of whether, you know, it produces and, you know, economy in some uh, form or another. And we do about $85 million in the housing trust fund a year, which if you times that times seven, over the years that we've done construction and all these things, there's a lot of folks that made, did really well as a result of that. There are millionaires probably uh, just on uh, the state contracts or federal contracts or local contracts alone. So this particular community um, organization is meant to take a lot of the outliers that haven't been able to participate in that process and give them the opportunity to do some of that, uh, that kind of not only uh, construction for communities. So there's small organizations that maybe have a uh, they need to do something with their food bank or they need to do something with their tribe in some way that haven't don't really have necessarily that experience or sophistication that those other uh, companies, organizations can sweep in and get uh, and create an opportunity for them to have, to build that experience, to start to build that uh, access to that part of the economy economy in uh, in construction, but also do something uh, good for their community. So it's it's one of the ways that I, I think that's the most important because the money, you follow the money, you know, it's, it's um, $85 million over, I don't know how many years, or that's a lot of money. And there's, and for communities of color and folks in the, the 
central area and all over our district, that's pretty significant, not only uh, as far as the economy, but also in them being able to build the buildings they need to get the housing they want to get and, uh, and, and continue to support and strengthen those communities. So what are the risks associated with that bill? Uh, it bucks tradition, you know? I mean, if you can imagine uh, you're, you're a company and you've been making, you know, 1.1 million and somebody comes and says, we're going to take, you know, I don't know, a third of that and it's going to go this way. That's money out of their pocket. So there's going to, that's going to be. And then unfortunately within the, the, those, those organizations, there's always potentially some rivalry that happens there. I mean, that's probably the, in my mind, the biggest risk that, uh, uh, that would be faced by or that will be faced by those organizations moving forward. It's it's really hard to do things that aren't traditional. It's really hard to do, and especially large organizations like the state of Washington or any organization. It's UW, you know. It's hard to move things uh, because it potentially can take resources away. Um, there's always going to be an argument, you know, philosophically, well, you know, we shouldn't do it that way. I don't want to do a carve out or why are we giving it to that group? We don't really, I don't really have a history and all that stuff. And it's not really geared towards um, building community, building uh, the tools and the resources that those communities need to uh, continue on and build on themselves. I mean, your film was a great uh, film in uh, outlining kind of what has happened uh, the part that is really hard to watch is that there are a lot of opportunities. And I think we heard that in some of the, uh, uh, the discussions after the films on, on as a community that we could have taken on and, you know, not captured all of it, but captured some of it through partnerships and other things and had control over a lot of those resources to do the things that we um, uh, valued kind of moving forward in that community and sustaining that community and, all those things, and we missed it, and part of it was because, again, that understanding of consciousness, full consciousness changing doesn't necessarily equate to the result that you're looking for. It's got to be a combination of both, and it's got to include some sort of tangible action, which includes some opportunity to learn and some access to resources. And so what you're referring to is my documentary on the brink and more importantly, uh, the central district, uh, the topic in terms of uh, it, it was fully it's getting developed. Right. But you're saying uh, and what we saw is that it, it wasn't necessarily developed by the people who were there and with their passion. Right. And, and uh, yeah. And there's I mean, and some of it is economics. You know, if you 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 have a home and you've been living in that home or have a piece of property and it's suddenly it's not suddenly, but over time it becomes very lucrative. It's hard to turn that away, um, but if you have an opportunity to make it not only even more lucrative, but keep it in the community in some way, which there are resources out there to help you do that through partnerships and you know public money in some way, then it could be even more. It could be something that can be a legacy piece that uh, could last not only for you and your family, but the entire community. And without that access to understanding and that control, then it's... Uh, it's, it, it's an opportunity missed. So you talked about the risks and you talked about kind of a cautionary tale in terms of what happened in the central district. What about for other communities and how do the benefits in your mind outweigh the risks? 
benefits outweigh the risk in that uh, I think every community wants uh, the ability to control its own direction and, um, and also be a player at the table with all other communities. And uh, if they don't have access to those resources or that knowledge or whatever, then, then they're put in a position to be constantly on the outs and asking, you know, like almost begging for an opportunity or some resources at some degree, which they may get. It won't be as much as they uh, would have been able to create on their own, but they may get it. And I'd, I'd much rather see um, uh, communities uh, use become more empowered through that action than uh, trying to get power or have it given to them somehow uh, that uh, – I mean, I haven't met one community yet that isn't doesn't have brilliance in it, doesn't have passion in it, doesn't have um, uh, the right reasons for why they want it to be the way they want it to be. There's just not a community I've come across that where I said, "Ah, that's ridiculous." Um, but the the issue is not all of them have the the same resources and opportunity. And so, what I would love to do is is continue to to create opportunities for those communities that. Have, have been left out and, and, uh, or have lacked the understanding or lacked the confidence that, Hey, you can do this too. Do you have anything to ask of the listener, uh, as it relates to these bills or the, uh, your other legislative efforts that you you have underway? I don't know what I could ask them other than to support all my bills. <laughs> Never question me about anything I'm doing. <laughs> Just know that I got it down. You know, no, 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 no. No, I, I mean, I, I think, I, of course, we all get better with uh, feedback on any ideas and other ways along those lines that uh, that uh, they can help me. It would be great. And maybe maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it is consciousness changing that is really the, the avenue. But uh, I've seen the most success by uh, a combination of consciousness changing and actual action. And I am open and willing to, to help anyone out there who's who wants to move that way. It's not going to be an easy, it's not going to be like you're going to a vending machine and sticking two quarters in and then boom, you know, you get it. It is a road. And it, it, like I said before, it, uh, it may be an existence that you may not see the end result for. But if we go down that road, if we work down that road together, I can guarantee that uh, the empowerment that people uh, want to have, long for, for communities that they feel like don't have it, eventually will get there. Any concluding thoughts? You know, um, it's an interesting topic, community, and it's everything. I everything that I think we do is all about uh, creating community. And when we, and in my mind, defining uh, that is again connecting with folks, you know, not being afraid to connect with people. I think we're seeing a real interesting time right now where people are breaking off and um, detaching, uh, connecting to differences about each other and making it a negative thing versus connecting with each other and seeing that the differences are really what makes us uh, strong as individuals, as a a country and as a state. So I'm hoping that... uh, that, that people will realize that it's not a program, it's not a building, it's not 
a magic words or anything. It's actually the, the connection one-on-one with folks. Representative Pettigrew, uh, thank you very much for joining me. I appreciate your time and perspective. Thank you. That is all for today's episode of Seattle Growth Podcast. Now I want to hear from you. What lessons can your business apply from these interviews? Who else do you want to hear from this season? Reach out to me on Twitter at Prof Shulman to let me know. Or come tell me in person at the next screening of On the Brink on Thursday, August 15th at the Neptune Theater. Head to www.onthebrinkmovie.com screenings to get tickets. Don't just take it from me. The stranger deemed it worth watching, and the Seattle Times hailed it as a cautionary tale and a call to action. Go to www.onthebrinkmovie.com screenings to get tickets. Next week, we continue to look at finding community in a dynamic city. We are nearing the end of this season of Seattle Growth Podcast, so let me know if there is anyone you wanted to hear from or if you have a perspective to share. Before we close out this episode, I also want to thank Pamela Burton for her help with the audio and Ed Cromer for his work on the UW Foster School of Business blog. I also want to thank uh, Michelle Ma, Rebecca Gorley, and Victor Balta and Peter Kelly from the UW News and Information Office for helping to spread the word of Seattle Growth Podcast. I also want to thank loyal listeners Ben Wegraff and Josh Shea, who continue to comment about episodes on Twitter. And I hope you will, too, comment on this episode on Twitter, and you can have your name uh, heard in the next episode of Seattle Growth Podcast. I'm Jeff Shulman, and I want to thank you and all the listeners who've joined me on this journey in the sixth season of Seattle Growth Podcast.